Open our Bibles together to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. Uh, has everybody thought out this morning? Good grief. Um, you know, I come down here to the balmy south in, in Georgia, and I had to sit in the car at the hotel for five minutes until the ice melted on the windshield. Uh, that reminds me, they had at the University of Michigan uh, an athletic director in the 90s. His name was Joe Roberson, and he served the school well for a few years, and then a few years later, he got to retirement age. And he lived in Michigan his whole life. He lived in Flint, and he lived in Ann Arbor working with the university system, and they asked him, they said, well, Dr. Roberson, what is your plan for the rest of your life? He said, well, I haven't exactly decided what I'm going to do uh, all the days and all the years to come, but there is one goal that I intend to meet. And they said, what's that? He said, I'm never going to let another snowflake touch my body as long as I live. So uh, I can understand that a little bit, having lived up there. But we hope that everybody's warmed up. You've had your coffee as we talk about the theme, Insiders and Outsiders. Let's look in John chapter 17, uh, beginning in about verse 6 and following. I've, Jesus says, I've manifested your name to the people you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. They have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those that you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in truth. Look again at verse 15. Jesus says these very, very weighty words. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. During this weekend, we've been thinking about the church as a home, a church as a refuge, a church as a place where all are welcome regardless of their background, regardless of their pedigree, regardless of their problems. And yet, that's sometimes an easier thing to talk about than to actually execute. My prayer is not 
that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. There was a Georgia boy by the name of Gabe Lyons, and Lyons has gone on to write Christian books and be kind of a purveyor of Christianity and culture in the modern era. And Lyons had an upbringing that would probably be familiar to a lot of us who have come up in the church. He writes these words, separation could have been our family motto. From kindergarten to high school graduation, I attended a private Christian school. Christian education was my parents' number one priority. They weren't always sure they could afford it, but it was so important that other financial needs would be sacrificed to make it happen. My parents are two of the godliest people I know, and I don't resent my upbringing. I can remember coming downstairs early in the morning and seeing my mother and father reading the Bible and praying at the kitchen table together. They read their Bible and prayed every day. For them, it was the essential discipline of the Christian life. And consequently, their lives reflect the most sincerity and integrity of anyone I've ever known. Whatever can be said about the choices they made in raising us, they certainly did not choose the easy road to following Jesus. I can only pray that I show my children such depth of commitment, character, dependability, and faithfulness. Yet I also realize the unintended consequence was instilling in me a belief that the role of a Christian was to be separate from the world. I often wonder how helpful it was to completely disconnect ourselves from the world's happenings around us. Families like ours, who chose to separate from the world, do so believing it is the only way to maintain their purity and holiness in a fallen, sinful place. This leads them to interact exclusively within their own circles, thus having very few meaningful relationships with people outside the subculture. Separatist Christians associate primarily with organizations that actually label themselves Christian, from youth basketball leagues to summer camps. These kinds of Christians are faithful church attendees, and are relentlessly committed to their principles. No one should question their spiritual devotion, but we might ask the question, is there a better way? Ultimately, the separatist Christian mentality is a remnant of the century-old fundamentalist movement. Knowing this helps frame the dynamics at play. When the Christian faith became threatened near the beginning of the 20th century by a secular-leaning society, leaders seized the opportunity to rally the troops. They treated these secularizing forces within American culture at large as the enemy, created an adversary, and then retreated behind their fortress of doctrinal statements. The entire movement has always been characterized by an oppositionalist mentality. 
Although getting back to the fundamentals of the faith was their rally cry, combating a secular America seems to be their true objective. As the historian Alastair McGrath says, to treat fundamentalism simply as a conservative religion confuses the characteristic and the distinctive. It goes much deeper than that. Fundamentalism is a countercultural movement that uses doctrine as a means of defining cultural boundaries, intended as much to alienate secular culture as to give fundamentalists a sense of identity and purpose. This clarifies how the separatist expression of Christianity has become so vocal and so dominant. As the culture grows more godless, the Christians have a reason to circle the wagons. Caring little about any broader purpose in the world, other than seeking conversions, they shout their views at the world and huddle safely with each other, far away from a world they believe is literally going to hell. Now, if that hits a little close to home for some of you, I can tell you it hits a little close to home for me. I was raised in a situation that was almost identical to what Lyons is talking about. And there was this sense of insiders and outsiders, a sense of us and them. But a couple of questions need to be confronted as we get into this morning's lesson. Here's the first one. Would you personally have any interest in associating with people who obviously disdain you? They don't like you. They don't respect you. They don't feel as if they have anything in common with you. Would you want to be around those people? We usually have an intuitive sense about those people who have warm feelings for us and those people who don't, who have respect for us and those who have little respect for us. So if we see ourselves as insiders and those who aren't Christians as outsiders, do we not understand that we're not likely to win them to anything, much less Christ. It was about 20 years ago, I suppose, that a friend of mine named Justin Acri, uh, who worked at 103.7 FM, the, the most uh, successful sports talk radio station in the state of Arkansas, that he started inviting me on the radio with him. And there's a little bit of a backstory there. Justin was, uh, was dating a young lady at our church whose husband had died a couple of years ago from uh, Lou Gehrig's disease, from ALS. And uh, he started coming to church with her, and I struck up a friendship with him. We visited and would have lunch together. We studied, and I ended up baptizing Justin into Christ. And as Justin became a Christian and, and started coming to church with us, uh, he said something to me one day. He said, you know, for a preacher, you know a lot about football. I said, boy, you don't know the half of it. I said, yeah, I, I know a little bit. And he said, well, would you like coming on the radio sometime? I said, well, sure. 
And that was about 20 years ago. I, I would have lost track of the thousands and thousands of times I've been on the radio since then. For 20 years, I've been on every Friday, and I usually fill in on some of the other shows through there. Well, that's not really the interesting part. I mean, any idiot can be on the radio and then put a microphone. You guys could do that as well as I could. But this was the interesting part to me. I'd been doing that for about three or four years, and the elders uh, at my former congregation uh, had a, a meeting. And they decided in the meeting that it wasn't a good idea for the preacher to go on the radio. And I found this all out secondhand, and... Um, and I asked one of them that, that had kind of leaked the information to me. He said, well, we were talking about this, and there are several of them that don't think it's a good idea that you go on the radio. I said, well, why on earth shouldn't I go on the radio? I mean, I go on on Fridays. That's my day off. I'm not skipping work. I'm not, you know, not, I'm not uh, missing visiting the sick in the hospitals of the little old ladies in the nursing homes or anything like that. He said, no, it's not any of that. There were a couple of people uh, on the radio, on the different shows, that were probably a little bit risque. I mean, they would never be mistaken for uh, preachers or for Christians, for that matter. And there were a couple of them that were probably a little bit edgy. And so I found the guy that uh, was kind of pushing all of this, and uh, I sat down and talked with him. I said, I'm just curious, why would you not me go want me going on the radio? I said, because we get a chance to bring up the Bible, we get a chance to talk about moral issues, and it's not just football, we talk about life. And this is what he said, and this has resonated with me on down through the decades. Well, I don't think it's a good idea for our preacher to be associating with people like that. People like that. I said, that... It sounds suspiciously like something that some of Jesus' critics said to him. If this man were really a righteous man, he would know who it is he's eating with. And he wouldn't be eating with tax collectors and sinners. And I told him, I said, well, I appreciate your concern for me. But I said, here's the thing. That's my day off, and I'll go where I want to go. And if I want to go on the radio, I'll go. Kind of hard to believe it took him 16 years to fire me, but that's another story for another time. When Jesus broke with Jewish tradition and struck up a conversation with a Samaritan woman, no one could believe it. Mostly, she couldn't believe it. You are a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman? How can you ask me for a drink? John chapter 4 and verse 9. Well, Jesus loved people. Regardless who they were, regardless what problems they had, regardless how messy their lives were, and it would have been unthinkable for Jesus to say to himself, well, I'm not going to be with those kind of people. What kind of people? The kind of people God made? That's all that there is in the world. There's no us in them. There's just us. In his book, They Like Jesus But Not the Church, Dan Kimball makes some really interesting observations. He says, God loves people and is patient and wants no one to perish but everyone to come to repentance. 
2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. This includes highly unlikely people, such as murderers, Acts 8 and verse 1, tax collectors, Matthew 10, verse 3, the sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, male prostitutes, practicing homosexuals, thieves, the greedy, drunkards, slanderers, and swindlers. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. All whom can justify and inherit the kingdom of God if they will be washed, sanctified, and justified in the name of Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Most of us have come from a background similar to those listed in 1 Corinthians. Most of us admit that Jesus has changed our lives and acknowledge how far he has brought us. Let's not forget that this same Jesus, who has changed our lives, can also change others. Someone saw past our hardened hearts and befriended us, despite the fact that we were sinners and didn't believe. And the gospel eventually changed us and turned our lives around despite our background. Kimball adds, he said, I've had to remind myself of these things. In fact, here are some questions I frequently ask myself. First, am I numb or neutral to those outside the church? No, we're among friends, so just mull over that question for just a minute. When you think about those that aren't members of the church, who are not in this congregation, I, what, what feelings do you have? Do you, do you just kind of cold toward them? Are you numb? Are you neutral? Do, do they not really even register with you? You know, if you're a Christian, you know, you're, you're, you're my good friend, but if you're not a Christian, well, you know, I really can't have anything to do with you. You'd be surprised how many Christians feel that way. How about this one? Do I intercede daily? For people outside the church, do we uh, recognize the difficulty of the lives of people around us, the struggles that they have? Does that matter? Do we go before God for these people? How about this? Who am I praying for now who's not a Christian? I've heard plenty of folks, and, and Lyons talks about that. He said, we got, you know, Christian camps, and we got Christian gatherings, and Christian basketball leagues, and Christian softball. Uh, when I was a little kid up in Flint, Michigan, uh, they had a Christian bowling league. They filled up 70 lanes of a bowling alley. You've never seen a, a bunch of people more interested in doing something, I should add, it's winter six months a year, and the bowling alleys are warm, and you can go inside and kind of move around and do something. But I remember those Christian bowling leagues, Christian this, Christian that. Well, I've heard plenty of people say, I don't even really have very many friends who aren't Christians. Let me encourage you to expand your horizons and make some friends who aren't Christians, because you need to. We all do. When's the last time that I hung out or had coffee or dinner, or just went and spent some time with someone 
who's not a Christian. You know, for some people, that's all they do is associate with their own. Can you imagine the scandal that John chapter 4 would have caused that situation? I mean, there would have been no one that would have been comfortable with that. Jesus shows up at the well at Sychar in the middle of the day, and a Samaritan woman shows up. That would not have been the most popular time to go and draw water, but it was not an accident that she showed up when she did because she wasn't really looking for a crowd. Because first of all, if there had been Jews there, they wouldn't have had anything to do with her. She would have been seen as a despised half-breed, the practitioner of a religion that the Jews deeply looked down on and disdained. So she thought if she'd gone in the heat of the day to get the water, maybe no one would be there and, and whoever it was maybe would leave her alone. But then she sees Jesus, and he's a Jew, and he's a man. And that would have guaranteed, not only would he not have had a conversation with her under normal circumstances, he wouldn't have even looked at her. That's basically what what the Jews did. They would avert their gaze. If you remember, uh, if you were coming from the north of Judea and you were going down to the south in Jerusalem, the straight line would have been go through the region of Samaria. The Jews frequently would go east and they would go through the Transjordan, then they would re-enter and go west, so they wouldn't even have to go through Samaria. They didn't want anything to do with those people. And then Jesus is sitting there treating her like she's a human being. Well, because she was. But so many times, the followers of Jesus, I don't think we mean to do that, but we start looking at others and saying, well, they're, you know, they're not like us. And they don't see the world maybe the way that we see it. And they don't have the same values that we have. And they don't come from a similar background. Well, we've got to start asking ourselves, how would these people perceive us? Would they want anything to do with us? Would they see that we're friendly, that we care about them? Kimball asked this in his book. He said, I suspect that you're reading this book because you do care. But I'm always amazed at how many Christians really don't seem to care much about those who were outside the church. Isn't something going terribly wrong when so many outside the church are getting so many negative impressions of the church and Christianity? Isn't something going wrong when so many people don't even know a Christian? If the gospel really is good news... And repentance is about being refreshed. Shouldn't we be doing anything possible to help bring this good news and refreshment to others outside the church? Good questions all. We need to be reminded that we're not saved because we're anything special. We aren't holy, righteous, or free from sin ourselves. We are sinners Saved by the grace of God. And if Jesus can save us, well, he can save anyone. We who were formerly outsiders are now insiders. But not by merit, by his grace. I mentioned that there were a few that didn't want me as a preacher going on the radio station to talk about football or anything else. 
Let me tell you something that's happened in the 20 intervening years since I've been going on there. I've lost track of how many times I've had somebody that worked at the radio station call me and share a personal problem that they were having or that they were going through a rough patch in a relationship or in a marriage or they were having problems with a kid or they were having struggles with drinking too much. There have been at least a couple of occasions when people that worked at the station that didn't have any church background whatsoever ended up calling me to perform the wedding ceremony for them. I don't say that to break my arm, pat myself on the back. I'm simply saying I was available. I showed up and I treated these people as if they mattered because they do matter. And I'm guessing in your own situation, in your neighborhood, at your place of work, at your school, in your family, there's someone out there that for them, you are that lifeline to God. You are that lifeline to the church. You know, it's Sunday morning at uh, 9.30 right now. And you know, for a lot of those people, they're sleeping one off from last night. Or they were watching the football game like me and stayed up too late. Or they maybe thought about going to church, but for crying out loud, there was ice on the windows and it was cold, so let's just uh, wait till it warms up a little bit. You know, look, you don't want to go. One excuse is as good as the next. I've been at this for a while and I think I've heard them all. Back in the day, I used a few of them, so I'm, you know, takes one to know one. But here's the thing. There's someone out there that you are fulfilling that role that Jesus fulfilled for the Samaritan woman. They're grateful that they know you. They respect you. They see that you're a little bit different. That you've got some things going on in your life that, frankly, they don't have. And they're interested in that. But how we treat those people is going to make all the difference in the world. We can sit back and cluck our tongues and revel in our spirituality and adopt the posture of the church lady. You remember that character Dana Carvey played on Saturday Night Live? Well, isn't that special? And we can be like that, and they're just going to kind of wander away. Or you can draw near to those folks. You can treat them with respect. And dignity, and dare we even say it, with love. And that might make all the difference in the world to those folks. While they're basically an outsider, you don't have to treat them like that. You can treat them as if they really matter. Because guess what? Without Jesus at one time, well, we were outsiders too. Go back in time with me a few years ago to the year 19. 07. In Winterset, Iowa, a baby boy was born. His parents named him Marion. He wasn't rich, he wasn't particularly brilliant, but he was a good-looking and likable kid. He was very popular in school and then in college where he went to Southern California. 
and he became a dedicated student and a football star. After college, being out there in Southern California, he drifted into movies where he became a rather undistinguished B actor. He wasn't considered very talented, but people liked him. He was a big, strong, sturdy fellow. There was a famed director by the name of John Ford, who had given the kid a hard time when he was in some of his movies, and he picked on him mercilessly during film shoots. But Ford made a decision. He said, I'm going to turn this kid into a star. And he cast him in the first Western with sound, a movie called Stagecoach that premiered in 1939. It started with the shot of the young actor saddle over his shoulder, rifle in hand. And the camera then rushes to a close-up, and he twirls and cocks the rifle in one flamboyant gesture. And if I practiced that for two months, I couldn't get it right. But when he did it, it was cool. And if you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, by the way, that young actor, uh, Marion Morrison, Ford gave him a new name. He said, Marion Morrison's not a movie star's name. You need another name, kid. Your new name from this point on is John Wayne. John Wayne, that's a good name. In 1957, at the peak of his career, he pointed out that the person on screen wasn't really him. He said, I'm Duke Morrison. I never was and never will be a personality like John Wayne. I know him well. I'm one of his closest students. I have to be. I make a living out of him. Amazingly, decades after his death, John Wayne remains American's quintessential icon. When you think of heroic Western figures, Wayne comes immediately to mind. He still is one of the top five film stars of all time. And, and he said something toward the end of his life that deserves to be heard. He said, I've played the kind of man I would have liked to have been. Those words just cut me to the quick. I've played the type of man I would have liked to have been. Is that not us? Okay, we play the kind of men we'd like to be or the kind of women we'd like to be, but, you know, deep down inside, do we have it all together? Have we figured everything out? Do we do everything perfectly? I'm not going to insult you by pretending to answer that question. That question, those questions answer themselves. But if you've never belonged to a church, or if you felt for years like an outsider, you need to know something. Just like John Wayne, we're playing the kind of men and women that we would like to be. Or, more importantly, the kind that God wants us to be. We don't have it all together. But Jesus does. And you see, that's the key to everything. When Jesus showed up at that well 
and talk to that poor, bedraggled Samaritan woman. Do you realize from that point forward, her life was never the same? You remember how the conversation went. And he said, well, you know, why don't you come call your husband over here? Well, you know, I, I don't have a husband. Yeah, I understand that. You say that you don't have a husband. The fact is, you've had several husbands, and the man you're with now is not your husband. And she immediately tried to change the subject. Yeah, well, that, 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 that's true. Well, you know, let's talk about religion. You know, we, we Samaritans worship here, and you Jews worship in Jerusalem. Can, can you tell me about that? Jesus wasn't rude to her, but he was pretty direct. And then you know what she said later when she went and started telling her friends about this man, this unusual man that she'd never met before, she'd never seen anyone like him? She said, he told me everything I ever did. The only one that's capable of doing that is Jesus. You realize before yesterday I had never set foot in Buford, Georgia. I got to tell you, this is a pretty cool place. And I'm basing it on that, you know, you got a lot of really good places to eat and you got a giant mall and I got to go home before I eat myself to death and just explode. So that's the plan later on this afternoon as I fly back home. But, you know, I, 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 I've known a handful of you. I, I've run into a few of you at uh, conferences and seminars and youth rallies and things. But I don't know most of you. I can't stand up and tell you everything about your life and everything that you ever did. But Jesus can. Jesus knows you better than you know yourself. And there's a sense in which on a small scale, on the small stage, all of us are John Wayne. We're playing someone more interesting and more exciting than we can really ever be ourselves. But God doesn't care about that because God made us. He made us who we are and he knows us. And he loves us. And in the same way that Jesus took that woman who was the ultimate outsider and made her an insider, God can take you and God can take me and he can make us insiders as well. What do we read in Acts chapter 2? And God added to the church daily those who were being saved. It doesn't say those who were perfect. It said those who were being saved. We live in a world in which most people are outsiders. And they feel like outsiders. And they know that they're outsiders. And yet we have the most precious, special good news on the, on the planet, on the face of the earth. And the very least that we can do is share that news with others. And remind them that God loves them, that we love them, and that in the church, well, guess what? There's a place for them because God has made a place for them. Let's go to him in prayer as we close.